0: Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 podcast. I'm joined today by Wake Smith and we're going to be talking about all things to do with delivering stratospheric sulfur aerosols or any other kind of aerosols. Um, And uh, he is one of the foremost experts in the engineering and delivery of these particles into the stratosphere. So hopefully we will all be very much the wiser after listening to what he's got to say. Welcome to the show, Wake.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Okay, so um, do you want to just start off by giving uh, people a, a, you know, a brief potted history of your uh, career in your um, current position? So they, uh, many people won't be familiar with you, you personally and they don't know whether you're a sprightly postgraduate um, or a soon-to-be-wheeled-off-the-pasture uh, pr- professor of great standing. So if you could uh, just give people a bit of information about who you are and what you've been doing to date, that'd be helpful.
1: Happy to do. I'm, I'm a none of the above, but uh, um, I um, uh, am a uh, Yale College and Harvard Business School graduate. I spent a 30-year uh, career in uh, commercial aviation and aviation finance, working in uh, consulting and uh, mostly in a variety of operating positions in um, the commercial aviation field. I ran a division of Boeing. I was a chief operating officer of a large global cargo airline. I ended my career in uh, the private equity business, buying and selling companies uh, uh, in commercial aviation. And in those roles was the CEO of a um aircraft uh, repair and maintenance and overhaul shop that also was one of the world's leading uh cargo aircraft producers and as well um uh ran an engine overhaul shop so a variety of um positions in in uh uh, uh, commercial aviation. All of that came, uh, caused me to, on the one hand, uh, become interested in the, uh, field of geoengineering, and on the other hand, become aware of the, uh, extent to which the world, by and large, didn't have good knowledge as to how it might deliver aerosols to the stratosphere. So over the past five years or so, I have transitioned to what's become a second career, Uh, researching and teaching and writing on topics related to geoengineering.
0: Okay, so um, a couple of questions from that. So you've obviously been attracted into the field of geoengineering, I'd like to hear more about that. And secondly, we try and give people a a bit of an insight in not only the topics uh, of academia, but also the prices of academia, you know, how difficult or otherwise it is to get papers published, how hard it is to cope with um, getting academic jobs and the general impact of academic life um, on your real world life. So um, you've you've obviously got a more Um, varied and interesting career than than many academics because you've had to work in the real world. And um, I'd just like to understand how and why you decided to make the transition uh, to the ivory towers of academia after having a proper job doing actual things.
1: I guess I I, um, got to a point where... um, uh, I'm able to do what I'm doing now in part because I don't need to earn a living doing it. And I've gotten to a point in my career where I can um uh, uh you know, work um uh without the expectation of um, remuneration from it. So I I um, am both a lecturer in Yale College, which gets paid, but not a lot, um, and a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, where I'm a researcher. But in uh, both cases, I'm, I'm not trying to make a living out of this, and I'm, I certainly have no uh, business aspirations in respect of uh, geoengineering. I'm, I'm simply seeking to uh, contribute to the, uh, the literature and understanding of the field. Um, um,
0: I think working without pay, proper pay is uh, something that uh, many postdocs can relate to. Um, could you give? Um, right. uh, could you give us an insight into? You know, you you're obviously you're familiar with aviation uh, throughout your career, uh, and I guess you you, you gained a knowledge that delivery to the stratosphere is a feature of geoengineering around the same time you heard about the concept but you, you, you've made a, a very interesting career transition i just want to understand why why did you pick this specific field i mean obviously there's an aviation connection but there's a lot of things you can do with your time um if you've got a a, a sharp mind and um few financial commitments so uh, or, or or ones that um, few unmet financial commitments so what was it about geoengineering that, that that drew you in to to give you know so much of your time to this field why why did you pick this rather than anything else
1: I'm I'm not going to give you a very cogent answer to that other than to say that I find it uh, very interesting and compelling. I'm convinced that the world is going to need a lot more geoengineering than the world understands that it will need. Uh, And so um, uh, contributing to the knowledge base in respect of that uh, is something that I'm enjoying doing. And uh, I have found niches where my aviation background gives me uh, an ability to contribute in ways that uh, uh, appear to be unusual in the field.
0: So let me um, uh, probe, if I may, your sort of academic trajectory, as it were. So you got um, uh, original qualifications uh, from Yale, as I think you said, but more recently you've worked on a number of papers and projects specifically around delivery mechanisms and uh, engineering and. Particularly the aviation side of engineering. Um, so, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the, you know, maybe a kind of one to three sentence summary of, uh, of, of of a few of the papers that you've done in this regard? Because there have been a, a couple of them, haven't there? So,
1: there have been. So, I've now written uh, two consecutive papers uh, that are costing papers, trying to more uh, precisely answer the question of how much would it cost to. Uh, implement a uh, geoengineering uh, program. And by uh, geoengineering is an unfortunate term, but it's, it's nonetheless a widely used term. Um, uh, in, unfortunate in that it encompasses, or at least can be understood to encompass uh, very different uh, technologies, both carbon removal technologies, as well as uh, solar radiation management uh, technologies. But in much of my research, I'm focused on the sub-sub field of uh, stratospheric aerosol injection. And uh, so I've written a couple of uh, papers that seek to better understand the Uh, question of how much that would cost. Um, The the quick answer is it's super cheap relative to almost anything else that we could uh, do uh, in in terms of major climate interventions. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea, but but it is cheap. Um, And what I have done- How
0: cheap in terms of uh, costs, uh, either in aggregate or in terms of per ton or per person per year? How how the, with? The,
1: the latest paper that I've written on that, the first paper that uh, uh, I wrote, both of which are published in environmental research letters. The first one simply approached the question of how much would it cost to get started and um, undertake the first 15 years of a geoengineering program. And the quick answer to that is for about $3 billion you could get to year zero, uh, by which I mean build the aircraft and the other infrastructure that would be required. Um, and the costs in the early years are in the few billion dollars a year range. So a few billion to get started and a few billion uh, per year thereafter. Um, the, the problem with going much farther than that is that um, one's got to determine um, where, in order to cost out geoengineering over, and by this I mean stratospheric aerosols, over a longer period of time than just the first decade or so, one needs to start to model how the world may unfold um, uh, in terms of the emission pathway that we're on, and as well, uh, what Uh, target we may seek uh, with stratospheric aerosols. So are we on a high emissions trajectory and we want an aggressive uh, SAI, stratospheric aerosol injection uh, uh, program, to counteract all of the warming? Or uh, at the other end of the spectrum, are we on a mild Uh, climate trajectory. We have gotten emissions reasonably under control, and we're only seeking a minor tweaking of temperatures with SAI. Those two ends of the spectrum um, would involve very different costs, but um, over the course of the entire remainder of the century, if such a program started in 2035 and uh, went through 2100, the uh, range of uh, aggregate costs could be a quarter trillion for the entire period. Uh, on the 250 uh, billion, yeah. Yeah, 250 billion. And that's
0: denominated in US dollars, right?
1: Uh, in 2020 U.S. dollars, and, and that's for the cheapest uh, of these interventions. We've, we've got emissions reasonably under control, and we're only trying to tweak. At the other end of the spectrum, it's 10 times that, so it's $2.5 a, um, a different way to look at it is the cost in any year to remediate temperatures by 1 degree Celsius, bring them down uh, by 1 degree, is about $18 billion dollars. And $18 billion, again, that's an annual cost in any year, um, $18 billion compared to a global economy of roughly $100 trillion is a is a drop in the bucket. It's more money than I've got. Okay, the... so,
0: so looking at those numbers, I think what you're saying there is that you wouldn't be starting tomorrow and then knocking the degree of temperature. You'd be starting tomorrow and then arresting temperature rise. And so you would creep up to that one degree because there's, you know, there's been a one degree historic increase, but your numbers came out more like 3 billion a year rather than 18 billion a year, right? So I'm guessing that you're envisaging a, a steady ramp up. Is that correct? Or have I just really bad at mental arithmetic?
1: Uh, the, uh, I would quibble with the, the arithmetic there a little bit, but the but the base point that you're onto is um, a- accurate as I've modeled it, but again, Uh, the world might, in the future, if it intended to implement such a program, make different policy choices. So it is possible, for instance, with such a program to commence today and um, uh, bring temperatures back to the pre-industrial level right away. That would be a bad idea, but it appears technically uh, possible to do. Or or instead, the world might say, we're not going to try to reverse warming, we're simply going to try to halt warming, Um, or an in-between, you know, so freeze temperatures at the one degree uh, uh, Celsius above pre-industrial that they're now at, or a, a middle approach would be to cut the rate of warming in half, not arrest it entirely and not reverse it, but, uh, but slow the rate of warming. Any of those policy choices are theoretically possible uh, with this. Okay. But,
0: but, but your, your, your basic stance that you appear to be taking is that you're looking at single figure billions per year for you know, a reasonably foreseeable fu- uh, future period uh, in terms of getting started in geoengineering, the first sort of generation or so of geoengineering interventions, you, we're probably looking at single-figure billions per year. Is that, is that approximately correct?
1: That's true because the program that I would propose, or at least the one I've modeled, is one that starts very small and ramps into geoengineering over time rather okay. than one that tries immediately, say, to stop the warming.
0: Um, so to put it, put it into perspective, to build a fairly significant uh rail terminal um or to build a shopping mall you're looking at around the cost of one billion and i guess probably a major hospital would be around that kind of level as well right so it's it's you know a significant amount of money but a pretty small uh part of the you know the budget of even a a single major country uh like you know for example the us or china or whatever right um Mm -hmm. Yeah, all,
1: all of that is true, and, and that's not necessarily a good thing. As you know, there are people that are worried that this is too cheap um, uh, and therefore may be tempting on an economic, you know, uh, uh, from an yeah. economic standpoint. But, um, a cheap uh, so fix, right? Yeah, right. So I'm not selling cheap as a virtue, uh, but I am confirming cheap.
0: Okay, so how do your cost estimates compare with those of other people?
1: Frankly, I'm not aware of anyone who has done the degree of um, precision in costing that I have done. I, I think
0: well, that, Delft did quite a bit. Uh,
1: Delft did in respect of the cost of building the airplane. I'm unaware that Delft has done a lot in terms of modeling the um, program cost. Uh, the yeah. Program cost. Well, McC- McClellan,
0: McClellan, who was hired by David Keith, as far as I understand, worked for Aurora Flight Services, yep. did a, uh, a, a a, a historic or an historic, depending on your pettiness over the English language, um, study on uh, the cost, which was uh, had some fairly significant limitations, and and uh, uh, could you? I, I, I just wonder if you could touch on them because I'm aware of some aspects of it, but I think that your uh, your um, uh, dunking on this study is a, a bit of geoengineering legend. So perhaps you could give us the the story of that.
1: Uh... Uh, again, among the things I've done in my checkered career is to actually run a cargo airline, and the the vast majority of the cost of any geoengineering program would not be the upfront developmental cost of the aircraft, but rather the the day-to-day operating cost of flying the missions. And so my costing... Uh, exercise was to do this as if I was literally founding an airline. Uh, So I first pretended I'm Boeing and and designed and built the airplane. Um, But then I uh, designed uh, and modeled the airline. Uh, So how many aircraft would we need and how many missions would they need to fly a day and how many pilots would that require and what would the ground costs be and so on. And built a full cost model for the airline that would um, uh, that would need to fly these missions. Um, I'm, I, I think I'm the only person in the world that has done that, or at minimum, I'm the only one that I'm aware of. So You're
0: certainly the only one who's run an airline and done it, I think. I uh, is, uh, so. Probably a fairly, fairly big claim to fame.
1: Yeah, but, but, but so it is back to your question as to how my estimates um, uh, compare to others. I think that merely what I have done is confirm with much greater precision and confidence um, conclusions that other people had previously um, stated in a more speculative fashion, which is, holy cow, this stuff is cheap, 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 and I have confirmed that, yes, it is.
0: Okay, but my recollection of uh, the situation with the McClellan study. Now, the McClellan study had had a number of flaws. So, for example, they um, uh, didn't really understand ballistics at all, and their shell calculations were uh, quite uh, um, surprising, to put it mildly. Um, I don't think their shells would have flown. They would have tumbled end over end. Um, and uh, my my recollection of the uh, situation with the David Keith and the McClellan study is that you, you uh, pointed out that his planes would fall out of the sky um, because they hadn't um, done the um, uh, the lift engineering correctly. Is, is, that, is that is that is that do I understand that correctly?
1: That's because basically I- correctly. Although I I, I uh, uh, have enormous admiration for both Keith and McCollin, so I'm I'm more nearly extending things that they've done rather than you know uh, trying to contradict them. But, but an
0: aircraft engineer engineering firm that designs planes that fall out of the sky, that's a fairly central part of what they're supposed to not get wrong, right? So how how exactly did the whole falling out of the sky thing happen?
1: Uh, I, um, if one, in my reading anyway, there's sort of some mythology that emerged from the McClellan paper, paper that I can't actually find in the paper itself. But the subsequent discussion of the McClellan paper that became current was that uh, it proposed that uh, existing aircraft could be modified to uh, reach the altitudes that are required and I, I having run an aircraft mod shop uh, read that or read that statement and, and questioned it and so upon further delving into it I did indeed confirm that that would not work the um, issue here uh, that makes this um uh, problematical is that the uh altitude at which one needs to deploy stratospheric aerosols in order to enable them to endure for roughly a year rather than fall out of the sky in roughly a week
0: is which is what altitude
1: it's 60 to seventy thousand feet and there's some research that suggests we may want to get to get even higher but to what's that what's it, that
0: in 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 um 20,
1: metric, 20 kilometers is the is the okay. uh, sort of benchmark and the, uh, uh, the, the, the prior view was that you could take aircraft that operate at 15 kilometers. Uh, your, your Boeing or Airbus cruises at roughly, uh, you know, uh, 35,000 feet uh, in, in kilometers. I guess that's about 13 kilometers. And, and we need to get substantially higher than that to be effective in respect of uh, stratospheric aerosols. But the view had been that you could take high-end biz jets, which fly a bit higher than a normal Boeing uh, does and uh, strap more engines on them, which would give you the thrust necessary to get up to 20 kilometers. The the, um, problem with that calculation is that there's a second limiting factor, which is buffeting. And you could indeed strap two more engines on a twin engine aircraft and get a lot more thrust. But the wing area of that, pre-existing airplane isn't sufficient to uh, generate the required lift in the thin air that's up around 20 kilometers. So indeed, the uh, uh, the aircraft would have fallen out of the sky. And that observation uh, uh, led me to Uh, The other main pillar of my prior research, which is in addition to developing costing papers, uh, developing uh, with a team of retired Boeing engineers, uh, conceptual designs for the aircraft that would be necessary to undertake uh, SAI. And so the first...
0: So for, the, for the aviation nerds that are tuning into this podcast, all one of them or half of them, um, uh, what's this buffeting effect that you're talking about? What what would actually go wrong with the planes that were originally designed?
1: It, the, the plane would wobble and just fall out of the sky. It would, be, it, it would become uncontrollable for the pilot and would get itself into configurations uh, uh, that would cause it to stall and fall out of the sky.
0: Is that the corner of death? Uh,
1: we're... we're, we're up into Coffin Corner and beyond. That's what would happen.
0: And, 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 and the f- if you could just explain very briefly the flight physics of that. So what, what's actually happening that causes that to occur?
1: Um, your your um, uh, stall speed and um, uh, maximum speed uh, eventually converge. So if you go slower, you stall. And if you go faster, you lose control of the plane. And this is described as Coffin Corner. and, and it uh, defines the edge of the flight en- envelope that any aircraft is uh, capable of flying at. And so and why so- does the
0: control why does I mean I understand stall because you, you, you don't have enough lift to keep the plane in the sky and it just falls out right? Are you, or, or you have a, break, a breakup more specifically you have a breakup of the airflow over the wing that, that results in that lift and, and therefore you, you you don't you, you don't have the, the, the lifting flight dynamics that you're used to but what is it that causes what is it that limits the speed? Why, why can't you just go faster?
1: Um, In respect of a pre-existing airplane, it will be that there's just not enough wing area to uh, generate lift and keep control of the aircraft. But if you're going to press for a more physics-oriented answer, I guess I'm I'm not the right guy to give it to you. What I did was to contact uh, Embraer and Bombardier and Gulfstream, along with Airbus and Boeing, and ask them if one could double the thrust on their pre-existing airplanes and get up to these altitudes. And they were all unanimous that one could not. So not only would you need to double the thrust on a pre-existing aircraft, but you would need to double the wing area on the aircraft. So now we're, we're ripping off the old wings and putting on new wings, all to get a fuselage up in the air that is oversized for our purpose because we don't need to carry people or boxes with a lot of air around them. We just need to carry a dense load of chemicals. So the point is the whole airplane is wrong. And rather than trying to retrofit new wings and twice the engines on too big a fuselage, you just start all over. Um, yeah, I
0: think it's perfectly sensible, but I also think it's notable that, 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 that this is really, for me, a salutary lesson in uh, hubris. Um, I, remember at harvard hearing um you know I, I, I don't like to name names but it is quite quite relevant here um that i remember uh, david keith saying that, that the engineering that's required to modify these planes is trivial and when i you know i went to an engineering degree four years wasn't terribly good at it but one of the things i did learn about it is that generally problems are not trivial particularly when they're described by non-engineers um and that kind of set my teeth on edge and i was very um well, uh, kind of pleased and disappointed. Obviously, it would be nice to have easy glib solutions, but I was certainly not surprised when um, easy glib solution turned out not to be either easy or glib, um, or rather it was glib, but it wasn't easy. Um, and, yeah, I I think that there's a lot of lessons in that, frankly.
1: Perhaps, but again, I, I uh, we all stand on David Keith's shoulders rather than stomping on his toes, and and so I certainly don't want to engage in that. He's, he's right that it is trivial. Um, uh, it's just not the trivial solution that was being discussed at the time, but the...
0: the, <laughs> cal- the, the, the <laughs> yeah. A, I mean, all solutions are trivial once you've achieved them, right? <laughs> but,
1: uh, well, n- n- no. Uh, the, uh, I mean, yes, but this doesn't require some aeronautical breakthrough or unobtainium um, no, it, I get it. it I understand. It, but I it, think that it, the specific,
0: it, yeah, the specific it, it, case in point that the modifications are trivial and what you determined was the modifications were not trivial. And it, you've the, redesigned the, an aircraft. Yeah.
1: Yes, rather that modifications are not the route by which one would go about this. Uh, you okay. would simply develop a new aircraft. But the the, the the reason that this aircraft does not exist today is not because it's, uh, there's some major engineering breakthrough that, that is required. Rather, it's that no prior customer has had a mission that required an aircraft to be able to achieve level flight at 20,000 feet, excuse me, 20 kilometers, and carry a large payload. The the aircraft that get to uh, this altitude now, the uh, uh, WB-57, the uh, U-2 slash ER-2, the civilianized version of the U-2, uh, the Global Hawk drone, all of them get above 18 kilometers anyway and get close to 20 kilometers, but they all carry nothing. They're all spy planes that, that just carry some cameras and maybe or maybe not a pilot. And what we need for This mission is a high-altitude dump truck, Um, uh, and so we don't need high-altitude long endurance, which is what the uh, prior spy planes are devised for. We need high-altitude high payload, and there's just nobody that's ever needed that before. But if somebody did need that and had the money to pay for it, it is relatively trivial to design that airplane. We, you know, With my Boeing team, we have a conceptual design that we believe we could execute in five to seven years for a few billion dollars. And relative to the amount of impact that this solution would um, uh, uh, entail, uh, that too is trivial.
0: Well, yeah, I think I think that, um, you know, that, that description is certainly fair, that if you have the money to go back to the drawing board and design an aircraft from scratch, then you are in a position where you can design for the needs um, of the mission. And as you say, you know, uh, while well, the modif- more modifying existing airframe might not be trivial, by the standards of conventional aircraft design, what you're doing here is, is essentially trivial. You're just designing to a different specification than the one that you've designed to previously. Um there's a couple of things I'd like to discuss. Um, the, the first is to, to talk, talk um, the listeners through the detail of the airframe. But I just wanted to go before I uh, talk about that. I just wanted to talk about these development costs because I think one of the biggest issues that we've got in your engineering is that uh, well, you know, well, when the Wright brothers first flew, they started off with a you know a very basic plane and it went a few feet, and then they people, not just the Wright brothers, but you know, put a, a whole uh, uh, confection of different um uh innovators and entrepreneurs built of a wide variety of different airplanes uh, and they had customers for everything from stunt planes to transport planes um and passenger planes right um but at the moment there isn't a customer for the geoengineering planes and and, and there's quite a bit of um design work that's, that's gone in um to this uh field from yourselves and other teams such as delft and um they they've got their designs which like to you to talk through in a bit but what what is lacking at the moment um is that the uh there's no funding for the design or for the research and development so how do we get to kind of product product zero um uh uh, in 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 this process or or perhaps product one as you might call it so the you know the the first engineered uh concept and the um and the first flyable airframe How, how much would that cost and where would the money come from
1: um I'm going to answer the question and then and then uh, evolve the question I'll call it. Um, uh, I, I, I think it is a mere few billion dollars to develop the first aircraft, uh, the the first copy of the first generation deployment aircraft. Um, there's some fuzziness around that number. But it's so low a number that the fuzziness, frankly, doesn't matter. If it were $5 billion instead of the $2.5 billion that I've estimated, it still doesn't change the equation very much. Well
0: that, I, I understand it, that in terms of the context of the total cost of the program. But I think the problem we have perhaps in geoengineering is rather different in that there's a kind of conceptual hill to get over here in that, people there's no funding available for this kind of development work and it it seems to me that the the the, the lack of existence of these aircraft um is is stymieing both the research um and the um uh and and also the political consideration of the field it it seems like we're kind of stuck in a funk for this for the sake of this what a from an aircraft development point of view, it might be a relatively trivial amount of money, but certainly when compared to academic budgets and, um, uh, and things like that is um, uh, quite a large amount of money. So how, uh, how, how, how do you imagine this being got over?
1: Uh, so, so, so let me describe, let, let me first though point out that the few billion a year, excuse me, the few billion that uh, uh, we have uh, proposed as a budget for the development of the first deployment uh, aircraft, um, is nowhere near as much as a um, uh, new commercial airliner uh, requires to get developed. But we well, do fleet wouldn't need... be as
0: big, would it? So, I mean, it uh,
1: wouldn't be as big. But still, if, if you were asking Airbus the, the cost to develop a similarly sized commercial airliner, the, just the upfront development cost to, to get to Model One, um, you know, it's, it's in the $10 million range. The difference is that we don't need the same certification path for this airplane that will either have two pilots on it or zero pilots on it and will fly a very simple, repetitive mission. Point is, it's a very different certification process and cert path. And that's one of the reasons this would be much
0: cheaper. Yeah, because you but can like me... fly them off an island in the middle of the sea and if they go wrong, they'll just fall in the sea and you got to make another one, right?
1: Yes, but also you don't need to test all the uh, boundaries of the flight envelope uh, as a commercial uh, aircraft does because it may be flown in, you know, by all sorts of different pilots and all sorts of different configurations for all sorts of different uh, reasons, Uh, uh, the, 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 the CERT path is a uh, a simpler cert path is one of the things that reduces this budget substantially, but let me let me move to uh, a more important consideration. having um, uh, done our own design uh, as as Delft did, and our design is different from delft 's design, but both of us trying to answer the same question and coming well uh, 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 what uh, we realized after our first uh, uh, conceptual design paper is that we were designing the wrong airplane. The airplane that the world needs much more approximately in time than the first generation deployer is a test bed aircraft and maybe a fleet of test aircraft, but the world is not right around the corner from going and deploying. As you've mentioned, there's loads of pre-deployment testing that needs to be done. Some of which can be modeled in in, uh, uh, the lab, but much of which needs to actually be be done in situ at 20 kilometers uh, to test the evolution of aerosols uh, in the atmosphere under real world conditions and so on
0: but why wouldn't you use an f-15e um ballistic climber or um uh sr-71 blackbird uh which can fly at you know roughly the right altitude but just have a few kilos of payload i mean you don't need to go and build a whole new airplane and airframe and get it certified you know just to go and do a few test flights right
1: but wrong i my guess is that you do need to do that. The few test flights will be thousands, so it's it's not a trivial uh, matter there's all manner of things that, it, let's be clear uh, I, I know you are, but for anyone listening um, uh, i'm not uh, a full-on advocate of stratospheric aerosol injection, it may be that we prove, despite the fact that it's cheap and likely that it would be effective in reducing temperatures, it may produce unintended consequences that we simply don't know about, and it may have regional consequences. So even if it's good for the whole world, if it's bad for Bangladesh, uh, we would need to know that before we did it. So there's a, there's an enormous testing regime that would need to be undertaken to determine what aerosols are the effective aerosols and how high we need to deploy them and at what latitude and longitude we need to deploy them. And but
0: but is that is that really size. the case? I mean, my, my, my thinking on this is that most, most of the effects um, that you would be looking for with a program of testing would be small-scale microphysics effects to try and see things like plume performance coming out the back of the jet um, and... You know other local effects. That if you were to have a testing program that was big enough to cause these regional climate perturbations, you'd basically be doing geoengineering already. So, my, I'm 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 not personally convinced, and I'm open to being convinced. But at the moment, I I'm not sure that that we do have much to learn from limited scale interventions. And I think other people have pointed out that a limited scale in interventions would would you'd have such a poor signal to noise ratio that you would be very hard push to actually find out what was going on with the climate that you were trying to force if you were only making these very small scale interventions. So how have you come up with the need for this um, uh, for this uh, test, test aircraft and test program?
1: Well, so I, I should uh, reiterate that I'm not the scientist customer of this. And if in the end, the scientist customers of this say what you just said, then there is no need for the airplane. I don't don't hear the customers saying that. But in part, there's a chicken and eggness to this. And the scientists that I coordinate with talk about that. Um, It's a little difficult for them to understand what testing they would want to do if they don't understand what testing is capable of being done and what the costs are of doing that among the limit, but, but, but if, if I, and I'm also not a policymaker, but if I were to pretend to put on a policymaker hat, I would want a hell of a lot of testing in the real atmosphere rather than accepting a few lab tests and, and some computer modeling. We are talking about messing with mother nature here. I can imagine as well, uh, even beyond the scientific need to test, that there may be political needs to test where India says, I'm happy that it worked that way over Nevada, but you need to come to Rajasthan and, and you know, uh, do the same test and make sure that it works the same here. Um, I would think that there would be an enormous global testing regime that the okay. world would, would demand before... So, so before it would implement this, but if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Nonetheless, so you're
0: basically planning to make a little plane and a big plane. Is that what it comes down to?
1: Um, yes. So, uh, and, and then yet another craft. So, so the latest paper that we have just completed,
0: uh, which is titled we, "What" and where is it published?
1: It is not yet published. It will be published in the um, uh, as as a part of the AIAA SciTech Forum journal in January. Our, our What's
0: AIAA? What is that?
1: Is the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and every January it has a science and technology conference. So our paper uh, last year related to the deployment aircraft was presented at SciTech 2020 and at SciTech 2021 this coming January we will present the next paper. Um, uh, the title is something like stratospheric aerosol experiments and uh, research platforms, but that's not exactly right.
0: Okay. Um, So so if you could talk me through the actual aircraft, so you've got a little plane and a big plane. So how, how big is your big plane? I mean, are we talking Airbus A380 or are we talking a Learjet? uh,
1: It's a little goofy uh, in, in size comparisons because it's got enormous wings and therefore enormous width, but not the same, uh, length. Uh,
0: so uh it so looks much, a little bit like a global Hawk in terms of its profile then, like long skinny I, I, wings. I,
1: uh, uh it, it, it does have long, uh, well, long thick wings, actually. Uh, it just okay. has a lot of wing area, but, but the, the larger plane, the, the, the first generation deployment aircraft, which we have, uh, uh Titled the Sai Lofter or Sail, the sail one is a wide-body jet um, uh, uh, size equivalent, not quite a uh, uh, a seven forty-seven, but a triple seven, uh, you know, sized aircraft.
0: Like a Dreamliner, right?
1: Uh, a little bigger than that. Um, okay, uh, but
0: it's a it's a hefty beast, then. it's not a small thing.
1: Uh, the the first generation deployer is meant to carry thirty thousand pounds or 13.6 um
0: uh and, and what and what's that in bushels <laughs> yeah. um uh, uh
1: it would carry thirty thousand pounds of payload to uh, uh a little above uh 20 kilometers
0: yeah um, it's about 15 tons right uh,
1: about 13.6 tons i think um uh the the uh, uh, Aircraft that we're proposing for this January, again, simply a conceptual design to understand, to begin to bound what is possible and what it would cost and so on, is a, uh, uh, an aircraft that's roughly half the size, uh, precisely half the wing area, but carries 3,000 pounds of payload rather than
0: 30,000 pounds. So that's like um, a, like a G6 or something like that, right?
1: Well, size-wise, weight-wise, it's, it's more like a 737. Uh, But again, configured a bit differently, Um, uh, much more wing, much less fuselage. Um, But the SAIR, stratospheric aerosol research aircraft, um, uh, would be a smaller jet that could get up into the 70s uh, 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 in in, in, uh, feet of altitude, so up 22, 23 kilometers.
0: So so um, you're saying that this one, that, that this little research jet is still the size of a 737 or the, is, is that correct? Or did I misunderstand yep, you?
1: Yep. No, no, that's right. roughly. roughly. Okay. Same. So
0: your, so your, so your, your small one is the size of a 737, which is like your kind of normal sort of like city hopper jet that you might take between, you know, Baltimore and DC, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: yeah Baltimore and New York anyway. Yep. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so um uh, and and but a, 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 a dreamliner is the sort of thing that you might take between, you know, Abu Dhabi and um, London, right? That would be the kind of flight that it would do. Yep.
1: Uh, again, I think we can call it wide body and narrow body, and and that's roughly right. The okay. the, the the benefits of the Saer, uh, the research aircraft, the little jet, relative to the. Um, existing uh, research platforms. There's only seven aircraft in the world right now, or seven and a half, that are uh, available for scientific research of this sort. Um, The the seven are all operated by NASA. There's three WB-57s, two uh, uh, ER ER-2s, which is the civilianized version of the U-2, and then uh, two Global Hawk's. Um, and then there's a Russian aircraft called the Geophysica, which is available in theory, but not likely in practice. It likely will not fly again. Um, seven aircraft, all of, them, all of them under U.S. control. Uh, the the um, uh, Global Hawks are generally not available for science right now, so it's really five aircraft. And those five aircraft are all older than I am. Um, uh, and how much longer they will... Uh, continue to be available is unclear. Um, How much access non-US allies or researchers anyway could get to them is not clear. They don't carry very much payload and they don't go uh, much above 60,000 feet. Um, they're, They're not likely, in my view, to be up to the task of taking uh, undertaking the, the volume and uh, altitude of uh, research that the world would require to ultimately make a decision to green light the development of a deployment uh, de- I,
0: I, I get your point, right? But what's the point of developing, I mean, the de- development costs are pretty big and a lot of opportunity to de-glitch the main plane is lost if you don't develop it first off. So why not just build the thing you actually want first and then just do your test flights in that. What's the advantage of building the smaller one?
1: The smaller one uh, uh, can um, get higher and altitude, some more altitude is one of the questions that one of the many questions that people have. Um, it, It certainly... Um, uh, it will be cheaper to develop and cheaper to manufacture on a per-plane copy, and there will be some small fleet of these that I think will be uh, required. Um, But as well, the big plane, again, is designed as a high-altitude dump truck that doesn't, therefore, uh, dwell very long at altitude. Um, uh, and having some dwell capacity of, of, you know, six hours instead of one hour may prove to be very important in terms of research. But let me use that segue to move on to the other aircraft that's proposed in this paper. So in addition to a uh, small jet that can both deploy material and then dwell in the plume and sample the material, We've also uh, presented a conceptual design for a uh, superpressure airship that would be a solar-powered steerable blimp, basically, that could dwell in uh, these atmospheric conditions for many months. And so not merely measure the near-field evolution of the um, a plume that we just ejected from a jet, but as well measure the far-field evolution of the um, uh, aerosols over time. And and so that uh, airship, the Sera, um, uh, the Sera and the Sare um, would give uh, researchers uh, a fleet of uh, two aircraft with different capabilities, which together uh, might prove to be robust research platforms. But let me wrap that anyway by saying, once again, I'm not asserting that this is what the research community will say that it wants. Rather, we're putting these aircraft out there and asking the research community if this is what they want. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll hope to hear over the coming year um, whether people perceive that this fulfills a need or not.
0: So to summarize, then, you've got a little plane that can do tricks and go around sampling stuff and fly very high. And then you've got a big, stupid plane that dumps stuff in the sky and then comes back down again. And then you've got a balloon that hangs around and looks at them both doing it. That's well, the broad, all of simple that's, version of it, right?
1: All of that's fair enough. And again, all of this is to attempt to begin to focus the aeronautical uh, community, the OEM community, uh, onto this problem of uh, stratospheric aerosols and begin to understand what assets we w- would need in order to research it.
0: To whet the appetite of the military industrial complex. Um, so can I just, there's a question about the um, uh, the big dump truck uh, plane to get my head around that. So you're talking about ejecting 30 odd tons over the course of about an hour. So you're looking at about half a ton a minute that's coming. Um, uh out the back of this car so that's you know to give it, to give people a, a a visual indicator you know i think they're called icus those forkliftable trucks of um uh containers uh a meter by a meter by a meter and you carry them around the factories and they're full of detergent or coca-cola or flavoring or whatever it is that you need um and and you're ejecting sort of half of one of those out the back every minute now you're ejecting that into the stratosphere the stratosphere is very very cold and it's very um, vacuum-like. And as you eject this stuff out the back, um, it's going to evaporate. And evaporation causes cooling, depressurization of the evaporate causes further cooling. And it's very easy to end up with lots of snow. And the material that you're ejecting out the back is either going to be sulfuric acid or it's going to be sulfur dioxide or hydrogen sulfide. And in all cases, you don't want it falling down very far because... You don't want it to wash out of the troposphere. You certainly don't want it landing on anybody's head. um, And basically want it to stay where it's put and play nicely. Um, Bearing in mind that as the flow rate increases out the back, the chances of it all sticking together in big snowy lumps and falling out of the sky increases. How are you proposing in your design to deal with that? Or is this a chemical engineering problem that you don't want to think about? You just want to, you know, cart the stuff up and let somebody else worry about the ejection?
1: Uh, more nearly the latter than the former, but you're you're speculating in that paragraph more than I think we know. Um, it may be that the uh, particle size issue and the agglomeration issue is a problem because we're venting uh, uh, H2SO4, for instance, um, but it may alternatively be that we are venting SO2, um, uh, which is uh, it, 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 it will evolve over a month or so into H two SO four, but isn't yet H two SO four.
0: No, I get it. I understand, but I'm talking about just the, you know, let the me, basic.
1: Let me let me, let me complete. Um, the the um, it may turn it, if what we are venting is SO two or another material that doesn't need to be uh, metered in terms of how fast we flow it out. We may be able to flow it out in a minute. Well, yeah, I,
0: I, I get the theory, but the point I'm making is that this isn't kind of fringe environmental science we're talking about. This is just basic thermal physics, right? So as you squirt this stuff out of the back of the aircraft, it will depressurize, it will evaporate, it will cool, it will expand, the evaporate will expand as well. And so you'll get further cooling and then regardless of whether it, I'm not talking about droplet size, I'm not talking about, you know, droplet nucleation and agglomeration and stuff like that. I'm just talking about how do you stop this stuff coming out the back end? as either a big squirt of liquid that falls out of the sky um, or alternatively as a pile of snow, which also tends to fall down pretty quickly. How do you get it to, because you want it to be, even if it's not well mixed and for, sulfur dioxide it doesn't really matter whether it's well mixed because it will eventually mix and then the um the chemistry will take over the the atmospheric chemistry will take over and cause the um the droplets to nucleate out over a period of time as you as you've highlighted but i'm just talking about the very basics of getting this stuff out the back of the aircraft how do you make sure that it comes out in a nice even stream of either very very fine um uh aerosol or alternatively um uh as a a stream of gas are you are you just preheating this liquid or are you um injecting it into the um the hot gas from the engines what what are you doing to make sure that there's enough um energy input um uh to stop it all freezing um or, or just failing to boil as you squirt it out the back
1: well, a couple of things. Firstly, what what our papers have primarily focused upon is a design of the platform, not the design of the um, uh, uh, nozzles out of which this stuff would flow. But an exception to that, the, the most recent paper, the one that we'll present in January, does present a nozzle design as another asset. But again, we on the aeronautical side of this are... Not going to produce a satisfying answer to your question until we know what it is that we're venting and therefore what the requirements for it are. There's a much okay. wider range of possible materials than you've mentioned here. You know, alumina, yeah, you can use
0: calcite or whatever. Yep, yeah, yeah. Calcite, I mean, look, I, I,
1: titanium I, dioxide and the, all, all of these nozzle and flow issues. It's going to be hard to answer until the scientists give us a better understanding of what it is they likely want to vent. And all of that will, in the end, being one of the things that the Sayer would
0: test is different. Yeah, I, that. I think that, that, that that's very interesting. But from a personal point of view, I've, I was quite surprised when I started looking into this, how little development has been done on you know, just the basic ejection physics of this stuff. Um, so, you know, uh, as you say, not, not something that your paper deals with comprehensively, but certainly one to watch. I think that the engineering challenges of getting this stuff out of the back of a plane have been not been fully resolved. Um, there's so no, there's,
1: there's no question about that. And so we are seeking to start that dialogue.
0: Okay. Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the reason I, I think this is pertinent because if there's some kind of maximum injection rate, that means that you can only eject, you know, a few hundred kilos in a flight. Then building a plane that's the size of a, you know, secondary school is not a very good idea because you'll, the plane will be far bigger than the the flow that it, that it needs to produce because you you hit some hard limit as to the amount of injection that you can make, right? Uh,
1: theoretically possible. We have signed, sized the sail, the big plane. uh, To to be able to vent at a rate that is consistent with the um, flow rate, the the maximum flow rates that Pierce and Ben Dune, you know, believe are are necessary. But again, I'm sort of going too far there. Until we know what the material is, it's hard to know what that flow rate is. But so so we're mindful of that. But there's some chicken and eggness to how we evolve to a solution there.
0: But yeah, but there's a, certainly a fairly significant un, unmet um, challenge there of getting the stuff out the back in an orderly in an orderly way. Um, okay, so uh, moving on, I'd just like I just like, right. I just like to, to to give people a clearer picture of what the, the plane looks like that you've designed, and also the other planes. So um, you, the the Delft University came up with um, another. Um, uh, conceptual product, didn't they? It wasn't called Sail Loft, it was called something else. I can't remember what the, what the thing was called. Do you, did it I, have I, a name? I,
1: I have forgotten, and they've done two generations uh, of development. They They did the first one in which I had no involvement, but they proposed a $15 billion developmental budget and i went to delft a couple of times and said to them i, I don't I, I don't think the world you know assuming an an a380 size development budget isn't sensible uh so they they then designed a second iteration of their aircraft and we now work very closely with the delft folks we they're they're a, they're a great uh, asset in this uh exploration
0: so my understanding of the delft one from what i recall is it looks a bit like a seaplane so you've got the I think it had overwing engines, didn't it, from what I recall. Is that right? Uh,
1: I don't recall. And again, there are now two generations of Delft designs. So we okay. would need to be clear which ones we're talking about. I'll I, I tell you, in the time we've got left, I guess there's there's one other development that I'd just love to preview with you uh, in respect of aircraft. Um, we, we've already commenced uh, the... Uh, uh, um, Conception of our next AIAA paper for SciTech uh, 2022. Um, and what we're going to explore there is an alternative um, uh, deployment concept, uh, which would be a very high altitude uh, solution that could get us up above 25 kilometers. And again, we're not certain that the scientific community needs that either for deployment or even research, but there are some scientists that would like that. And so we're trying to ask ourselves how we could get into that altitude regime uh, without moving to rockets or balloons or other uh, much more costly uh, platforms. And so we are just at the beginning of looking at uh, ballistic zoom climbers or rocket uh, uh, assisted aircraft or aircraft that uh, uh, can uh, uh, loft, you know, uh, carry mortars that would loft the material another 20,000 feet above the aircraft.
0: That um, sounds pretty cool.
1: Uh, it, it is cool. Whether any of it is relevant, we don't now know, but again... Why, why would
0: putting a mortar on an aircraft be more sensible than just having a bigger mortar on the ground? And why would you bother I'm, to I'm, take I'm, it up in an aircraft?
1: I'm not convinced that it would be. Uh, it's it's a question we've got to explore. I I think if, if this made sense at all, it would make much more sense uh, either as a zoom climber, but again, a zoom climber can't achieve level flight. So if we've so, got so a just flow to, rate... Just
0: to, describe that for people who are not of an engineering bent so the, the zoom climb goes along straight and level very fast and then you basically pull back on the stick and the aircraft shoots up in the sky and so even though if the engines can't produce enough power to keep you um, at altitude because there's not a lot of air for them to breathe they're just a the sheer ballistic energy of the plane it just sort of turns the plane into a shell and it flies up in the air follows a ballistic trajectory and then falls back down into the kind of breathable atmosphere where it can fly properly, and then it can do that again if necessary, right? That, that's the principle of the Zoom climb, right?
1: That, uh, all of that's correct, and, and that would only be useful for deployment if instantaneous deployment is acceptable, so if we're yeah. talking about SO2, for instance, where all we've got to do is get to altitude for a minute and just vent get, vent the tanks and we're good. Um, if, on the other hand, we need to Yeah, if to it doesn't meter, all
0: turn to snow and fall out of the sky, yeah. Right. But
1: if, if on the other hand we need to meter the flow rate and therefore need to be on station for an hour or two hours, then a zoom the climber zoom is, climb not, is
0: not going to work.
1: Yep. Um, uh, 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 maybe not to get too far along on a paper we 're only starting on, but the point is that the because there is some uh interest in the scientific community about a higher deployment uh, prospect we 're trying to map what the solutions might be what the aircraft based solutions anyway might be uh, for that um, so in in each of these papers we 're trying to present um uh, concept, uh, uh, to the, uh, scientific community from the aeronautical community to, uh, determine what sorts of, or to propose platforms and understand their, uh, utility to the scientific community as we go forward.
0: Okay. I mean, I think it's very interesting. You've, um, put together this, uh, a full suite of aircraft, uh, be they, um, you know, limited in concept by a, a, a lack of clarity from the scientific community as to exactly what they want. I think you're kind of engineering in a bit of a vacuum when they've not, there's no clear decision about what the, the particulate matter should be, as you've quite reasonably pointed out. Um, and But you, I, one thing I want to just get, so you, you mentioned one paper that hasn't come out, but you, you mentioned a, another one that I think has come out. So if people want to look up your work, what's the title of the one that you've actually... Has uh, actually finished the publication journey. What, 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 where's that? How can people look up?
1: Um, in in respect of the aircraft papers, it's it's um, again. I'm not recalling the um, uh, title exactly, but it's published by uh, the SciTech Forum of the AA, AIAA in January 2020. And then the next okay, one so it's be, not it's yeah, not
0: yeah, gone out into a yeah. journal yet. You, you met, I think you mentioned environmental research letters. So I wondered if you'd so, publish en- that Envi-
1: you. environmental research letters has published both the costing papers, the, the first 15 years of deployment, and then the uh cost, costing out to 2021.
0: Uh, and do you recall the title of either of those off the cuff? A-
1: a- I'm sorry, 2100. Um, uh, the uh, uh you're, you're 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 gonna embarrass me. I've written these papers, but I'm not gonna recall the titles correctly. No, I don't remember
0: anything I've written either. I'm dreading my Viber if I ever get around to having one because they'll ask me what I've written and I'm just like I have no idea. Did I write this? I don't <laughs> even remember that paper at all, let alone what was in here. So um well, yeah, that's fine. I'm sure people can Google your name and um look up some of the geoengineering stuff that you've done. So I think uh you know, just to summarize, you've, you've made some um, really interesting points about the uh, potential benefits of having um, some smaller research uh, craft with different capabilities, drawing attention to the lack of uh, clarity from the scientific community on what uh, the the engineers like you and I are going to have to throw out the back of our aircraft, and giving us an insight into the um, development costs, which while uh, a, a relatively small step for a major economy, is certainly beyond the... Uh, Uh, discretionary funds of your average university professor. So we might have to go scrabbling around to get um, uh, some money to go and do these developments um, from uh, a fairy godmother or a benevolent politician of some kind. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Wake. Um, Anything else that you want to stick in as a last word before we finish up?
1: No, I I guess I, I, uh, other than that, I'm not feeling quite, frustrated by uh, you know the lack of development funds. What we're doing now, we're able to do without much funding. Um, if the world unfolds in the way that I think it will, um, the world will suddenly decide it needs assets uh, such as the sort that we're proposing, not only for geoengineering research, but simply for climate research. And so if my prediction is right, the world will come find us. I don't need to find it.
0: Okay, well, let's hope that they do so in time and they don't run around in a blind panic and uh, try and bolt on moped engines to jets or whatever it was that was uh, the state of the art before uh, you came along. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the show and for your contribution to the field. And uh, it's good to have people who are uh, non-academics coming and showing academics how it's done. Um, and long may it continue. Thanks very much, Wake. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. bye 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 bye